Welcome. You're listening to a sermon podcast from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. So about uh, 15 years ago now, my wife and her friend Jenny uh, went off to a silent retreat together to uh, the New Kamaldoli Hermitage, which is a monastery down in Big Sur, uh, uh, down off of Highway 1. And she was gone for three days, left me with the kids. She went off to meet with God. I was left with the kids. Uh, and the kids were four and two and one. There's three of them. It's me. Uh, but she was, which is great. You know, I'm really supportive of, of retreats and those kinds of things. I, I just want to be there for her and her journey with God. And that. But she's also very considerate in recognizing that she had left me for three days and two whole nights with the kids, uh, she, she brought me home a gift. Um, actually, it was two gifts, really. One was a journal, and the other was a bookmark in the journal. Uh, and I opened the journal. The journal was very cool-looking, and the, uh, took out the bookmark. And at the front of the bookmark is the painting of a monk, which is the kind of thing that you would assume you would get from a bookmark that you get at a monastery. Uh, but it was nothing remarkable. On the back, though, uh, had printed what it said was St. Romuald's Brief Rule. Now, St. Romuald, I looked this up on the internet. I don't know this. I looked it up. But St. Romuald is an 11th century monk. He was the uh, founder of the Kamaldolese order, basically the founder of the branch of Christianity that this monastery uh, belonged to. And a monastic rule, uh, for those of you who don't know, it's basically kind of forms the spiritual formation philosophy of, of that particular chapter or branch or monastery. And the basic guidelines for people who come to the monastery to follow that want the character of Christ to be formed into them. In essence, how people who want to can become more like Jesus and live more fully in the reality of the kingdom of God. And St. Romuald's uh, brief rule is this. It says, sit in your cell as in paradise. Uh, the cell for a monk is the room that they live in. It's not prison. Uh, sit in your cell as in paradise. Put the whole world behind you and forget it. Watch your thoughts like a good fisherman watching for fish. The path you must follow is in the Psalms. Never leave it. Now, at the time uh, that I received this bookmark from my wife, because she left me for three days, three kids, uh, I was kind of in one of the space of wondering what I should be reading in the Bible. You know, like, I don't know if you've ever been in one of those places where you're not supposed to, you know, you're supposed to be reading the Bible, but you don't really know where to, and you've kind of read a lot of the Bible, most of it, and, you know, you could read any part of it because it's the Bible, so it'll be good, right? Um, but nothing really draws you and you're, actually kind of tired of 
dissecting passages and going through and kind of chiseling around and uh, trying to squeeze moral lessons out of it. And yet, you know, it's the best way to commune with and hear from God, not just because that's what you've heard from other people, but because that's what you've actually experienced yourself kind of in your own journey reading above. So you want to read it, you really do, but you just don't know where to go. And so you don't. And so you're frozen. And the Bible sits day after day. You never crack it. And even though, again, you know that you should and any, you kind of want to, but you don't know where to start. Ever been in that place with the Bible? Maybe it's just me. I was kind of in that place. And so I read St. Romuald's brief rule, his simple invitation to just stay in the Psalms. And this wasn't the first time I'd heard of just staying in the Psalms, but for some reason, this time, it really connected with me. And so I started into the Psalms. Nothing major, one a day. And really, for the past 15 years or so, the Psalms have been my home. Not every day, of course, and there have been seasons where I've meditated on other portions of the Bible as well, but in general, it's been my rule, it's been my pattern, it's been my home base. And over the past 15 years, the Psalms have become my friends. Uh, They've given words to my prayers, they've helped me process the emotions of life, they have broadened my vision of God and the world, and so I was pretty excited when, uh, you know, we first decided that we're going to spend our summer series in the psalm. Uh, Because for all the time that I spent reading the psalms, I realized I haven't really done that very many sermons on the psalms. And as we were talking about this, we were trying to figure out when the last time we actually did a series on the psalms even here at Oak Hills, and, I, and we couldn't remember. The only one I can remember was a series that we did way back in the 90s, back in the New Community days. Uh, and I remember it only because that was like one of the first times I ever spoke at a big church, and it was in this series on the psalms. And at first, we were kind of ashamed. It seemed a tragic oversight to how could we have left such a critical portion of Scripture unexposited, uh, not preached about, not taught. But then, you know, Colleen and Manuel and Mike and I, we began to talk through what it would actually look like to preach on a psalm. And we realized why we hadn't done it. You see, first of all, in sermonizing, which is what we do on Sunday mornings here, uh, and sermonizing on a passage, what you try to do as a preacher is you try to take the passage, you try to understand what God was saying to the original hearers of the passage, and then from there you seek to discern what God might want to say to us through this passage. And for the majority of Scripture, this is a great approach, uh, because the writings were written with the purpose to reveal something specific to the original readers of the passage. Really, it contains God saying something to his people through this passage. And so it makes sense to step in with a scalpel, if you will, and kind of dissect it a bit to understand what God is revealing to us. But when we come to the Psalms, they are unique in the writings of the Bible because in general, rather than being God's words to his people... They are actually primarily the words of his people written to God. Uh, This is how Peter Craigie and Marvin Tate put it 
in the introduction to their commentary on the book of Psalms. Uh, They write, these Psalms are not the oracles of God. They are Israel's response to God's revelation emerging from the painful realities of human life. They are Israel's response to God's revelation emerging from the painful realities of human life. Which, when you think about it, it makes sense. Actually, in reality, in our Sunday services... The book of Psalms is not neglected or forgotten at all. Really, the Psalms are all over the place in the songs that we sing and the prayers that we pray and the ways that we call each other to worship every Sunday as we gather together as people. And that's not just true of our church or even our little slice of the Christian tradition that we're a part of, but for close to 2,500 years, the words of the Psalms have been used as a guide for the people of God to talk to Him. It was true of the religious practices of the Jews. It has been true of the community of followers of Jesus. The Psalms really are the starting point of what we say to God. So really it makes sense that we don't spend too much time preaching the psalms because they are actually more meant to be sung, meant to be prayed. Another reason we don't spend a lot of time preaching out of the book of Psalms is that in a sermon, again, the purpose is to figure out what the passage means, to some extent, what the message of the passage might be. What you can do with an essay, you can do with a speech, you can do even with a story to some degree. All of these different genres of writing tend to have a singular purpose, tend to have a point that they are trying to make. And so the search for that point, the principle, well, it's actually kind of what the author wants us to do with their writing. The Psalms, though, are different because the Psalms are in essence poems. And whether they are sung or prayed or even wisdom oracles, they are written in poetic form using all the tools and the tricks of the trade of poetry. And one of the worst things that you can do to a poem is to state unequivocally what the poem means. I love the way Uh, Billy Collins, who's a contemporary American poet, says it in his own poem entitled Introduction to Poetry. He writes, I asked them to take a poem and hold it up to the light like a color slide or press an ear against its hive. I say, drop a mouse into a poem, watch him probe his way out or walk inside the poem's room and feel the walls for a light switch. I want them to water ski across the surface of a poem, waving at the author's name on the shore. But all they want to do is tie the poem to a chair with rope and torture a confession out of it. They begin to beating it with a hose to find out what it really means. They begin beating it with a hose to find out what it really means. And there is a danger that in a sermon series in the Psalms, We might end up beating a psalm with a hose 
to find out what it really means. Not to say that poetic writings and the Psalms especially have no meaning, that there is no message, that there is no point. Of course, of course they do. But in poetry, the power lies in its subjectivity, in the discovery. And it's the same way with the Psalms. One of the beauty of the book of Psalms is their ability to adjust to where we are today. It's the ability of one psalm to give voice to your joy one day and voice to your sorrow the next. To one day be a prayer for yourself, another day be a prayer for an unknown soul on the other side of the world. You see, ultimately, the psalms are not so much written to be understood, but more they are to be experienced. Because the context out of which the Psalms are written is not the context of abstract concept or theological uh, treaties. The context of the Psalms is the context of relationship, covenantal relationship. And so what the Psalms invite us into is relationship with God. A real Relationship, one in which we are authentically us, where we respond to the difficulties, the difficult realities of life as we actually do, not just as we're supposed to. I mean, as you read through the Psalms, you run into the authors saying some pretty messed up things, some pretty angry, vengeful things. And the point of the Psalms isn't to say, oh, it's okay. You can feel that way. It's okay to look forward to bathing your feet in the blood of your enemies, which is an actual quote from an actual Psalm that I read like last week. But what it does give us permission for is to express our authentic feelings to God in our language. We don't have to mind our manners, or watch our words with God. We are in a relationship with Him. So we can come as we are, as we hope to be, in our good times, in our bad times. And He listens to us. He welcomes us in to relationship. And this is really, I think, the aspect of the Psalms that we are hoping to draw out in this series. There are a bunch of different speakers lined up over the next few weeks, and they, they have each picked their own psalm that they want to deal with. Each one of them is going to deal with it in their own way, out of their own experience. They will inter- introduce us to their friend. And of course, we hope that we learn a thing or two along the way. I mean, after all, I think it is pretty safe to assume that the authors of these psalms They had a fairly deep experience with God that they knew him pretty well. And so I am quite certain that if we are paying attention, that God will, in fact, reveal to us something of himself, of his kingdom along the way, and, of course, how we fit uh, in the world. Also, I would expect that we will learn a bit about how to express our experience to God as well. You see, it is the nature of good poetry that it is transcendent over time and place and cultures and people. There is a reason why the whole world knows Psalm 23. 
But more than anything, it is our hope that through this series we are invited into and that we step into a deeper relationship with God who wants relationship with us. So with that, let's dive in. You don't know where to start. You begin at the beginning, said a now famous owl. If you don't know where that comes from, ask your kids. Psalm 1. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither, whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous. But the way of the wicked leads to destruction. This is the word of the Lord. So I have a lemon tree at my house. I say it's a lemon tree not because it has produced any lemons, but because it says it's a lemon tree on the little tag that was on the branches, that still hangs on the branches. I planted it when we uh, bought our house uh, two years ago. And after two years uh, in my backyard, this is what it looks like. You can still see the tag on the tree. It's a pretty sad picture, you must admit. The leaves are yellow, and no, lemon trees are not supposed to have yellow leaves just because they're lemon trees. It did actually flower uh, in the spring, but the four or five petals wilted away almost as quickly as they bloomed. No little lemon thingies left at all. Now, it's very important. You must understand this, and Carolyn, this is especially for you. It is not dead, okay? It's not dead. But you can hardly say that it's living. It's just kind of there, looking pitiful all the time. Now, of course, it's way better off than the avocado tree that I planted at the same time. The avocado tree looks like (laughs) that. So, it could be worse. But the sad thing about it is that what I had in mind, my vision, what I was picturing when I planted these trees, you see, what I had in mind was this. This is the house that we left in San Gabriel when we moved here. And what you're looking at there are uh, two avocado trees, uh, a lemon tree, an orange tree, a fig tree, and... Behind there somewhere is an apple tree. We would start getting avocados off of these trees somewhere in early January. And we would pick avocados on demand until sometimes all the way midway through June. The, uh, the orange tree and the lemon tree were so prolific that they, we basically had fruit on the tree 
all year round. By the time the one season's fruit was getting old, the new ones had started to grow. The lemon tree, in particular, was so good that it was like regionally known in our neighborhood. Like our neighbors would come and pick lemons from our lemon tree and they would tell their friends about it. It was not a, like seriously, we would be sitting and eating dinner in, in our house and we had a window you could look out and it was not an uncommon thing to be in the middle of dinner, you know, after work, you know, 5.30, 6 o'clock, something like that. A random car pulls up to our house. Some person gets out of the car, we don't know, with one of those plastic shopping bags, waves it at us through the window and says, well, Nicole said I should come get lemons. Okay. That's what I had in mind when I planted those trees. Now in this psalm, the psalmist paints two extremely contrasting pictures. On the one hand, he paints a picture of a tree planted by streams of water, giving fruit in its season with leaves that don't wither. Basically, he's describing this. On the other hand, he talks about chaff, that the wind blows away and comes to nothing. In other words, he's talking about that. And the difference between those two are quite simple for the author of Psalm 1. You don't need to be a biblical scholar to decipher his point here. The difference between these two is that the full fruit-giving, prosperous tree is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. And maybe if this were a normal sermon and I hadn't spent so much time uh, what a psalm was and how we shouldn't be preaching about them, but that we were going to preach about them anyway. Maybe I would spend the time to parse out very carefully what the psalmist might have meant when he wrote wicked or sinner or mocker in this psalm. Maybe I would detail out what he meant by the law of the Lord and what that actually means for us as 20 first century Christians. And, and we could dive into the Hebrew words in the psalm and we could talk about ancient Middle Eastern culture and topography and flora and trees and, 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 and frankly that would be a great sermon. And I would love to do that sometime. But even after we did all that work we would arrive at the simple point that for a lot of us most of our days most of our days we feel like that. And we'd love to feel like, like that, like that, but most of the time we're afraid that eventually we're going to end up like that. And the psalmist here is saying quite simply that the road from here to here is very simple. Do not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers. But learn to delight in what God wants you to do and meditate on that day and night. 
And maybe, you know, maybe we don't believe him. Like, what does he know, right? We don't even know who this guy is. We don't even know his name. Like, he could be, like, making this stuff up, right? Maybe we are convinced that the road from, from there to there is money or, or uh, what college you get into or how big your followership on social media is or how well your kids are doing or what kind of car you drive or how attractive your spouse is and on and on and on we could go. The different theories that our culture offers us as to how to get from there to there. Or maybe we just agree with the voices that really the road from there to there is whatever you decide it should be. No one can tell you how to get from there to there. Just you can decide the path and you can make it for yourself. But really, I think we've, we've all seen that movie a time or two. We all know how it ends. Frankly, it's the simplicity of this invitation that makes it ring true. It's why it sings to the deepest longing of our soul. Do not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but delight in what God wants you to do and meditate on that day and night. And yes, of course, along the way, we need more information about what he means about the wicked or the sinner or the mocker. And yes, we need to help figuring out what God wants us to do. And if we read the rest of the Psalms, they'll actually help us figure that out.